Now, please join me in your bulletins, Bibles, or up on the screen. I'm going to be reading out of Matthew chapter 20 or 1 Corinthians 1. Matthew 20, 20 through 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them, to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. First Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Please pray with me. Jesus, we love you this morning. We pray that as we spend this time listening to Bruce speak your truth and talk about your scripture, that uh, we would be open to your wisdom and your truth, that we wouldn't be focused on worldly wisdom or what makes sense to us, but that we would uh, be trying to understand the world as you created it and the life and the peace and the power that you have made available to us. Jesus, we love you and pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. Thank you, Lockwood. Thank you, everybody. Um, I was just reading in John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And that is something to be cheerful about in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of pain. And uh, I'll share with people afterwards with regarding my wife, Donna, who, who is in a lot of pain right now, her second day after breaking the tibula um, plateau, right, that the kneecap sits on and very difficult. Well, this morning, I um, want to talk to you about these passages that we just read and, um, and a couple of more. One of the things that uh, upon meditating upon these scriptures is the realization that living in this world is an incredible challenge beyond belief. And it is absolutely impossible to do as a Christian without the power of the Holy Spirit. And I say impossible 
for us in and of our, ourselves to live to the glory of God without the sustaining, intervening power of God working in our lives. The temptations, the distractions, the demands that are upon our lives to succeed in this world uh, is such that it naturally takes our mind off of the objectives that Christ has given us and the objectives that, and, and the realities that he lived out before us, as we see in the scripture. <coughs> so it makes it a very, it's a realization that, that we come to that uh, I just realized I was sharing this morning in the Gospel of John class that um, uh, one, of the, one of the adults in the class brought up John 6, 44, no man comes unto me except my father draw him and him will I raise up on the last day. It was a realization that it is a supernatural work of God. The next verse, verse 45, talks about the fact that they, all of them shall be taught of God and they have learned that the father will come to me. Without God's regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we don't and won't come to the living Messiah, to the living Savior Jesus, but with the work of the Holy Spirit, with the intervening, uh, regenerating power of God, changing our hearts, and a to be able to love God, to be able to want Him and follow Him, as Romans 5 says, that while we were yet enemies, Christ died. Being enemies of God, being, having hearts changed and transformed by the Spirit of God, and then now desiring God. And being able to see the kingdom of God is what is involved in knowing God and walking with God to the glory of God. This passage in um, Matthew I chose because I felt the Lord put it on my heart. Because it's reflected that even in the early stages of the disciples who had been walking with Jesus now for a couple of years had hearts that were completely, again, uh, reflecting a worldly mindset. Now, think about this. They're walking with Jesus for a couple of years, and they still are, the mold of this world still has a heavy pressing influence on how they're thinking. And so we see the uh, mother of James and John coming to Jesus in chapter 20, verse 20, and asking, and obviously they'd had this conversation, James and John, and the mother whose name was Salome, uh, I understand she was a sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So basically James and John, I think were first cousins of Jesus. And uh, so they felt possibly had a little access here that maybe the other disciples uh, didn't have. And so she comes and feels, feels that access pretty strong and says, you know, say that these two, tell me, please, that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand, one to your left, in your enthronement uh, in heaven. And Jesus basically says, you don't know what you're asking. And... Um, Basically, he looks to the John and James and he says, are you able? Is this what you're asking? And they said, we are able. 
I'm not quoting right now. I'm not even looking at that passage. But basically, they said, we are able. And what's interesting about that is the other disciples, in verse 24, they've got the same issue. Because if they understood what Jesus was saying when he says, you don't know what you're asking, they wouldn't have gotten upset with James and John for trying to edge in on a position with Christ on the other side in the enthronement that they didn't even ask him about. <clears throat> so we see this mindset of the world. The world influences the church. And we see it worldwide. We especially see it in America. The influence of the world, the corporate structure of the world influencing the church. It's a top-down system. The ethics of the worldly kingdoms of this world, including America, is a top-down ethical system of he that at the top, they that are at the top, rule over they that are at the bottom. And that influence has somewhat come into the church. I'm not going to spend time on that. But the, the bottom line is, what are the ethics of the kingdom and what is Jesus recommending here? <coughs> at the end of this chapter, at the end of this section, Jesus says, with regard to the Gentiles, and again, the reference to the top-down system has to do with what Jesus said in verse uh, 28. Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. So as the church of Jesus Christ, we are to understand that distinction and we are to organize ourselves in the way that Jesus was trying to teach his disciples to understand the ethics of the kingdom of God, which is as he goes on to say, uh, but whoever would be great among you must be the servant of all. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so I just want to talk to us a little bit about the fact that it's a bottom-up kind of servant leadership position and posture that, that God has given us in leadership at the church. It's not a condescending, it's not a, uh, an issue of how the Gentiles rule over. It is a service heart, a servant's heart of seeking to minister answers, compassion, love, patience, long-suffering, all of the fruit of the Spirit upwards. This is the thing that Paul exhorted the disciples about and that are, excuse me, that Paul exhorted us about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. If you read that, you'll see it uh, very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, very powerfully demonstrated by the Apostle Paul, that Paul understood this chapter in chapter 20 and would have had applied it to his life. Now, I want to take one quick example here. John the Baptist at the time of Jesus was the most popular man in all of Israel. He didn't care about being popular. He didn't seek popularity. His dress was unique. 
he had a stench about him because uh, he wore uh, garments of animals that had not been cured. He ate locust and wild honey, and he came through baptizing. He was calling people unto repentance from sin and faith in God, to faith in God, of the Messiah who was to come. And this man was extremely popular, and he had a huge following of disciples. That even at the time that Jesus had begun his ministry, there were more disciples of John in Judea than there were of Jesus. And it took time before that transition began to take place. And when John saw that the influence that he was, had had and had continued was equal, if not greater, than the influence that Jesus was having, he made some statements. One of which, I think in chapter 3, was, I must decrease and he must increase. So John understood the concept of the ethics of the kingdom of God that we're talking about, bottom-up leadership. And he makes a statement in chapter 1, verse 27. Excuse me for a second. I should have wrote that down, but I'm going to just read it real quick here. With regard to Jesus, and he says, hmm. John had been asked by the Pharisees, are you Elijah? You know, that's pretty popular uh, at that time especially because they believed that Elijah was going to come before the manifestation of Messiah. So with John doing the things that he was doing, they were so taken up with him. Herod, King Herod was taken up with him uh, as well. But they said, he had said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah had said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, if you are not the Elijah or the prophet, and John answered them and said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now that statement right there is an idiom in Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew mind, I should say. It was written in Greek, but in the Hebrew mind, that was an idiom. And, and basically, what he's saying here is this. I found a, a, a comment that R.C. Sproul made on this, uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul made on this uh, section in John. And it says this, John's mention of Jesus' sandal strap was an idiom, an expression of the Jews. A disciple of a rabbi such as Jesus' disciples, actually functioned as the personal slave of the rabbi and took care of all his needs, making his housing arrangements, getting his food, and so forth. We see examples of this in the ministry of Jesus, such as on the occasion when he sent his disciples into Jerusalem to make sure that a room was reserved where he could celebrate the Passover. But the one thing that differentiated a disciple in a rabbinical school from an actual bondservant was that the disciple was never required to take care of the shoes or the sandals of the teacher or the master. A slave could be reduced to that humiliating task, but not a disciple. Therefore, when John the Baptist said, I'm not even worthy to unstrap his sandal, he was saying, don't look at me. I'm lower than a slave. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. 
to take off his sandals, to clean his feet. Don't look at me. Look to him. I'd never seen this before until I started teaching the Gospel of John class back in May. And in this first chapter, uh, I'd come across an R.C. Sproul quote that I just read to you. And when we think about it, John was basically saying there was the disciple, there was the slave, and then there's me. And when he made that statement, which was a Hebrew Hebraism, uh, an idiom that they understood that I'm not even worthy to unstrap his sandal. He, they understood what he was saying. He was removing himself from the public eye. And notice, that's called humility. It's powerful, especially when you're a guy like John the Baptist, who was just absolutely, whether they liked him or not, he was recognized as a great leader. I want to turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Starting in verse 18. And it was just read, For the word of the cross is foolishness or folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There was no greater work of humility than what Jesus did at the cross. Okay? God becoming man, submitting himself to death in a manner that was absolutely the most humiliating kind of death in every culture in the world. The Roman culture, the Greek culture, the Jewish culture, every culture of the world dying on a cross in public, you couldn't get more humiliating, okay? It was even prophesied about in Deuteronomy. And, and so, <clears throat> but to us, it is the power of God. I will, and he goes on to say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Top down, remember? The pyramid. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand, a, demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, whenever we, in the New Testament, when you see the word Greek in that kind of way, it's a generic reference to the Gentile world. Uh, it wasn't a limited reference to people who were from Greece. It was a genetic, remember Greece before the Roman Empire had taken over basically the whole world. They, under Alexander the Great. But when we look at this, we, we see a very powerful, uh, I'm so thankful that, for Paul writing this. When I first read this, I was so excited because I was in college and I remember reading this and thinking, oh my gosh, this is just so powerful. What a statement. And yet at the same time, my whole life I've been tempted to live by the world. 
where it comes to the ethics, the ethical requirements and the ethical demands and the ethical definitions of success, uh, climbing the ladder, trying to get to the top, trying to be able to be in a position where people would recognize my success and what goes along with that, more money, more things, better houses, better cars, more liberty, more vacations, more on and on and on. I, I, we've all, every one of us, we are so molded into that thinking uh, sphere of processing what we're doing here in this world. It is such a powerful influence that the enemy, that Satan has over against us because does anybody want to suffer? Does anybody enjoy suffering? I'll tell you, my wife right now is really hurting. I had a hard time leaving this morning. She barely could move her leg without yelping. And nobody enjoys that. Nobody wants that. And the world says, hey, man, you do things my way, I can relieve you of some of that. And, you know, and guess what? It's not evil in and of itself to be successful in this world. To make good money is not evil in and of itself. To have beautiful homes is not evil in and of itself. All of those things are good things, blessings. They're good things. In fact, the, the biggest enemy that a Christian has is all the good things that the world offers and all the good things that Satan offers. It's one of the biggest enemies that we have because the appearance of permanence deceives us because we think this is it. And even as Christians, many times, we come to a point where we think this is it because we've accumulated, we have gathered to ourselves successfully, We've got to where we, our goals were this. We got there. We've kind of arrived. But if we're real honest with ourselves, we know that it's not as fulfilling as we thought it might be. And it never will be, especially as a believer. There was a quote by a guy named Henry Nowen, Nguyen Nowen, that I want to read to you along these lines. I think it was out of his book, The Way of the Heart, Henry Nouwen says, it says, Henry Nouwen, theologian and professor at Harvard, Notre Dame, and Yale, enjoyed enormous success and couldn't understand that irrespective of this success, he increasingly felt uh, and remained dissatisfied spiritually in heart and life. In one of his books, he writes about the three lies that we all live under. That is, that is to say, Three lies, three illusions, excuse me, and three deceits that we all believe and live by. And he states that we will never be free until these three lies are unmasked. And they are this. Number one, I am what I do. And for most of us that men and women alike, that is referring primarily to career profession that you work so hard to get at. I am what I do. That's who I am. And what do we, whenever we meet somebody, hey, what do you do? Innocent, normal, natural, good question. We always respond, this is what, what I do. Wow, cool. That's, that's great. We'll talk about that for a while. Second question, I am what I have. 
Where do you live? Oh, North Ranch, Malibu, Santa Monica, wherever. Cool. That's who I am. And what I do, what I have. And that's natural. And there's nothing wrong. That's all good. It's all good. Don't you love that statement? Everybody says, it's all good. You know? And I, I, I'm a teacher at LA Unified School District. I remember when the students started saying that to me. And I remember going, eh, no, it's not all good. <laughs> In fact, it's pretty bad. And uh, so anyway, you got it. Third thing, I am what other people think of me. That's a huge deal. I really personally struggled with that. And people have told me over the years I'm, I overthink things that I do or say in terms of how somebody received it or responded to it or maybe it hurt them. If I would have said it differently, it would have been better. And I, I have been so guilty at times just going home, whether it was with a student, another teacher, or a friend, or whatever, just really overthinking my words and actions at times. Um, so I've really been guilty of also being concerned about what other people thought about me in terms of my success or my lack of success um, or how they maybe didn't show the respect that I felt I deserved. That's a tough one. When people maybe say something to you that you thought was disrespectful um, and to, to absorb that, put it in its place. Well, he goes on. And now one says, as long as you're living under these lies, you're living out of your faults, comma, dead, uh, and enslaved self. I am what I do refers most of the time to career. I am what I have refers to material possessions, family, and friends. I am what other people think of me primarily refers uh, and usually refers to reputation and approval. But in reality, now one says, and I, I, I believe the scripture says, you are what Jesus says you are. You know that one passage my wife used to quote all the time. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. There's more, no more succinct truthful statement about who we are as believers than that statement. You are what God has given you because your identity in Christ is not achieved. So in response to the second one, I have what I have, now one says you are what God has given you because your identity in Christ is not achieved by you. It was achieved by Christ. And thirdly, in response to what other people think of me, and finally, you are what God says about you. You know, in seeking uh, something, I, I wrote down something I wrote a while back, a number of years ago actually, in studying and seeking the application of Christian truth, we, we tend to embrace an inversion of spiritual and material identity and values of this world, where in Christ, when we compare all of these things, Loss is gain. Uh, poverty is wealth. Weakness is strength or power. Folly is wisdom. We just read about it in 1 Corinthians. And death is life. What did Jesus say? I think it was in Matthew 16. He that desires to come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. It's the three Ds. Desire, deny, 
die. Okay? And so there is some truth in this inversion of spiritual and material identity that we have in this world. Or you could put it this way, gain is loss. If your gain is causing you to feel so self-sufficient and independent that you don't need the body of Christ or you don't need Jesus, then your gain is loss. Wealth can be poverty. Power, weakness. Wisdom, folly. And finally, life can be death, depending on how, again, this is inverted. Oops. Finally, I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, starting in verse 1 and 2, where Paul says, this is how one should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. And in verse 8, he goes on and he says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Remember, he's talking to Corinth. Greece was, a, for the most part, a wealthier than natural or normal community or state or country. Education was way up here. Oratory. Waxing eloquent was huge. That's why Paul had such a hard time uh, in Corinth. They preferred people who had oratory excellence in all that they said. Paul, I don't believe, probably even focused on trying to be ex eloquent in his oratory. But the thing is, is that was high. He says... It, He goes on, he says, without, without us, Paul says to them, you have become kings. Again, the ethics of the worldly model was paramount in Corinth. The ethics of the worldly model of the kingdom of the world was paramount. It was huge. It was definitely not the inverted triangle, the regular triangle rising up to the top. Where am I here? Paul says, for who sees, excuse me. Oh, I went too far. Let's see. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Jump down to verse 13. He says, when slandered, we entreat we have become and are still like the scum of the world, 
the refuse of all things. This is the Apostle Paul. Without question, in terms of being a writing apostle, he was the greatest apostle we had that Jesus sent us. This is the Apostle Paul giving you a description of how he felt he was being treated as the apostle of Christ throughout Asia Minor, Judea, all the way to Rome. I wrote something a while back that I wanted to share with you with regard to verse 1 and 2, the figure of a steward or servant. Verse 1 and 2, Paul uses here, it comes from the Greek word huperetis and literally means under rowers, a term originally indicating the lowest of galley slaves, the one rowing on the bottom tier of a ship. That's the picture he's giving us. Now, I don't know uh, if any of you are old enough. I see so many young faces out here. But many of us are old enough to remember. I remember, I think I was in junior high school when Ben-Hur came out. Ben-Hur was a movie. Charlton Heston was the lead actor in that. How many saw Ben-Hur? Okay, great film. God influenced my life at the age of about 13 or 14 by watching that film. And the only thing that Jesus, only part of Jesus that was shown in that film was his sandaled feet. And I'll never forget seeing his sandaled feet that Ben-Hur, who was a slave, saw in the film. And whoever made that film, I can't remember who the great director, producer was, captured something in that because it changed Ben-Hur's heart. When he saw the feet of Jesus and then he looked up and the expression on his face was life transforming. And it did the same thing for me. I just went, oh. I went back to see it again. And I'm a, I'm a kid. I'm like 13, 14 years old. I think it was about 1964 when it came out. 1963, 64, something like that. And it just had power. Now, one of the things that stuck with me in this film that I just put down in my own words here, uh, this under rower perspective. If you remember at the beginning of the film, there's a ship and there are rowers on the top, there are rowers in the middle, and there are rowers underneath at the lowest tier. And Ben-Hur was at the lowest tier. They were the lowest of galley slaves rowing that big Roman boat back to Rome. From this text, I personally am reminded of the movie Ben-Hur where the leading role, played by Charlton Heston, uh, is on the bottom tier of the ship rowing with all the other galley slaves. They were the most menial and despised of all the slaves. Paul, though an apostle, considered himself to be a galley slave of the Lord. And he wanted everyone else to consider him in that same light. No one exalted one galley slave above another. Every slave held the same rank, the lowest. They had the hardest labor, the cruelest punishment, the least appreciation, and in general, the most hopeless existence of all slaves. Christian ministers are first and above all else servants, huperetis, of Christ, subordinate to him and his will. Hard to swallow that if you're called to the ministry. I believe with all of my heart it's true to every syllable that that's what God has called us to be as leaders in the church.
God is raising up leaders above the leaders that are serving at the bottom all of the time. And when he raises them up, guess what? As they get prepared, they come down to the bottom and begin to serve. That cycle. You learn to serve. You're qualified to lead. It's the most humble position that is available to us. And it's the position that Christ preeminently took as an example for us. Finally, First Corinthians chapter 12, Are we, uh, next couple minutes, we're all right. First Corinthians chapter 12, I, I kind of uh, did the example of reading just to make the point. First Corinthians chapter 12 is a very neglected uh, chapter of Paul's letter to the First Corinthians because there have been so much abuse in the area of chapter 12 and chapter 14 with regard to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So, so many good evangelical churches kind of go, whoa, 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 there's been abuses here. We better stay away from that, okay? Uh, however, there's ways to understand this, this book uh, that puts it in a perspective that will be helpful to avoid those abuses. First of all, in verse uh, 27, Paul says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now, <coughs> there are a number of great metaphors that we have in the word of God for the church. The body of Christ, especially in this Pick this particular passage is probably the most extended and detailed description of the metaphor of that of the church as a metaphor of the church because he goes into such a detail in terms of explaining how we should be relating to one another and in verse um, 14 he says for the body does not consist of one member but many In verse 21, it says this. I'm going to jump over some of this because it's rep repetitive. Verse 21 through 26, it says this. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Apple Corporation doesn't believe that. Google does not believe that. IBM does not believe that. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow with greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And again, 
Now you are that body of Christ and individually members of it. Now, this chapter goes into a description of the nine gifts or manifestations of the Holy Spirit in such a beautiful way for the purposes of exhortation, edification, and comfort to the body of Christ. Not to be abused, but to be, operate in a way that is decent and in order. And instructions in chapter 14 give us an understanding. But one of the things that I have discovered is when you look at the purpose of this chapter being the, the essence of how we are to love one another and in relationship to one another, how we are to give preference to the weaker parts of the body or the newer parts of the body, I don't have a problem with abusing my gift in the body as one who maybe gives prophecy or as one maybe has a gift of discerning of spirits and casting out devils or as one who has a gift, uh, who has faith for healing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When our proper understanding is in place with regard to what Paul's saying, this whole chapter is a reflection of probably the, the greatest reflection of the metaphor of the body of Christ that there is in the Bible. It's beautiful. It's powerful. When that's first, then when we get to the gifts, it has its proper place and we don't have to fear the abuse of pride, self-centeredness. Look at me. Aren't I great? Aren't I gifted? <coughs> so I just, I just wanted to, to bring this out. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 31, the human body metaphor of the church of Jesus Christ implies and declares a participation of each individual in unity and diversity. Where do we get that unity and diversity? The Holy Spirit unifies and it diversifies so that we recognize one another in our particular differences and diversity and embrace each other in that. So I wrote, in unity and diversity in every local church throughout the world, then each local church entity throughout the world reflects a corporate unity and diversity of membership in the worldwide church. As individuals make up the local church of Jesus Christ, so the local church entities throughout the world make up the universal body of Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that unifies and diversifies the fellowship and function of the church body as each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And that's a reference to Ephesians 4, 15. And so... The other metaphors of the body of Christ that we have in closing is that the church is the bride of Christ, a huge metaphor of how we are to perceive one another. Jesus loves us like we are his wife. And guess what? He's a perfect husband. <laughs> and nobody on earth can say that they're a perfect husband. But Jesus is the perfect husband. And we, the body of Christ, are not the perfect bride. And Jesus is so good that he is helping us and conforming us to his image through letting us share his suffering so that we can become sensitive to his heart for one another. So sharing suffering in the body of Christ as the bride of Christ 
changes us to love one another in ways that we couldn't do it any other way. Another metaphor is the family metaphor of God. Uh, The church is the family of God. The fourth one I want to give you is the church is the household of God or the household of faith. It is a household. How are you guys relating in your households? I had four kids. I, I can remember trying to get to church on time. Sometimes it was really hard. And sometimes it felt impossible. And sometimes even when we did get there, when we got there, we weren't happy about it anyway because we fought all the way. And I remember the struggle. I used to think to myself, when is this going to be over? (laughs) Sincerely. And finally, we are the temple of God. The church is the temple of God. What precious metaphors of who we are as the people of God. Let's not take that for granted. Let's, Let's take it seriously. Let's take it more seriously than anything else in this world that we're presented with. Let's take it that from this standpoint, that the most important place you can be today is here. Let's take it from the standpoint that the most important thing you can read in your entire life is this book over and over and over. That the fellowship of the saints is the most important fellowship and interaction of human intercourse that you could ever possibly have in this world. That your relationship with one another is the highest priority of all the things that are going on in this world. And I'm going to leave you with this. I've never heard anybody say this. I've never read it. But I personally believe, based on Ephesians chapter 4, I'm not going to quote it, that with all the geopolitical, and my gospel of John class have heard this numerous times, of all the political, geopolitical issues going on in the world and all the troubles that exist out there, and all the leadership aspirations and, and striving and, and contention that's going on in this world to rule it, basically in that context, under the rule of Satan, who's the prince of the power of the air, the most important thing in God's heart and mind, the most important objective, the most important heartfelt desire and love that God has in his heart right now, is for every local church that is reflecting the love of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for it. There's nothing that means more to the Lord Jesus Christ than his local churches. Accumulated, made up of local churches making up the universal body of Christ. But you know what? We're going to know more about the universal body of Christ down the road. What God wants us to be aware of now is the local body of Christ that he has placed us in. There's nothing more important to the Lord Jesus than the local church that he's placed you in. Make it a priority to keep that in place. Don't lose that. Don't drift from that. Because there's nothing more important. If you're drifting from that, then you're focusing on things that are not important. Or as important. And we need to come back. That's the self-talk I give myself. I just thought I'd share my self-talk with you. And if I'm meddling, I'm sorry. But thank you.